This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chepka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Most current discussions regarding vaccines relate to the hopefully near future vaccine for COVID-19. But there's another important vaccine which deserves discussion, the one for influenza. Because both COVID-19 and influenza are respiratory viruses, there's significant overlap in the symptoms of these two conditions. Influenza season is just around the corner and it will be extremely important to minimize the likelihood of individuals who develop influenza. In previous years, the percentage of individuals who have chosen not to receive the influenza vaccine has been significant, and this really needs to improve. We'll be discussing the influenza vaccine, including techniques to increase our patients' acceptance of this immunization. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Jacobson, a pediatrician in the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic and an expert in immunizations. Bob, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, and I was particularly glad to talk about influenza vaccination. I know it's one of your favorite topics. It is. It's an important vaccine. It's a vaccine that every one of us needs to get every year, and it's hard to accomplish that. As a clinician, we have to really change what we do in the fall to accomplish it. As patients, we have to do something that is out of our ordinary routine to get the vaccine. Why is it especially important for our patients to get the vaccine this year? Because of COVID-19, we have to consider the overlap in symptoms. As you mentioned, 50% of flu cases present with fever and a cough. Well, if my patient calls me with a fever and cough, or a parent calls with their child having a fever or cough, that patient needs COVID-19 testing and perhaps other members of the family too. Well, that means every case of flu is going to trigger investigations into COVID-19. We can't afford that. The family can't afford that. This is a big burden that we have not yet faced in the last six months. While we hope that we can find ways with social distancing and masking to control COVID-19 and in the future vaccinate against COVID-19, We also have to conserve resources and people's energy, time, and focus by avoiding unnecessary cases of the flu. How is the next season's vaccine prepared and when does that start? How do you know what's going to be going on six, 10 months from now? Around the world, the U.S., as well as the World Health Organization and other governments, monitor what is happening with influenza every week of the year? What cases, what do the viruses look like? For example, in Minnesota last week, we had two school outbreaks and one nursing home outbreak of flu. It's only October. Our season traditionally begins in December, but that's the kind of monitoring that's going around. Well, as these strains evolve, around February or March, The World Health Organization meets with the U.S. Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration and decides with other governments what strains need to be in next year's vaccine. And then those manufacturers take that recommendation and they go back to their plants, their manufacturing sites, put them in hen's eggs and start growing the viruses that will make the vaccine product that we put in our vaccine. And that process takes months. 
So it's a process with naming the vaccine strains in March that results in manufacturers being able to ship product in August and September. So it's a long process. These vaccines change every year because the viruses shift and drift every year genetically. And as large groups of people become immune to the flu from having received either the vaccine or the flu, these viruses actually evolve and mutate. And that's what we're fighting. Now, patients can pretty much go into a retail pharmacy and or, or our provider's office as well and get the influenza vaccine essentially any time of the year. When is the change from the previous or current year to the new year take place? What, what month does that happen? All of the vaccines made in the U.S. expire by the end of June. Most inactivated influenza vaccine expires June 30th. The live attenuated influenza vaccine has a much shorter shelf life and providers need to recognize that those have to be monitored very closely in their refrigerators to make sure they don't have expired product on hand. But uh, the new vaccines start becoming available in July or August of that year. The vaccines we're giving this month to our patients to prevent the flu that's coming around the corner. We had first available here at Mayo in mid-October, but some pharmacies and some clinics were able to get their hands on vaccine in August or September. Is there a problem getting a vaccine that early? Do they lose their effectiveness late into the winter, like you know, February or March, when influenza is still quite active? You know, getting the flu vaccine is more important than not getting it. And uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and other authorities used to basically state, well, the vaccines might wane. There's a few studies that show that it might in older people or in younger people. They're not convincing. They're not consistent. Get the vaccine when it's available. This year, however, the experts have really changed their statement and saying, you know, getting it in uh, July or August is probably a mistake. There's enough evidence now accumulated that for some people, particularly those 65 years and older, that the immunity might wear off while we're still having outbreaks of flu. Remember in Minnesota, we're still having outbreaks of flu in May and June. Right. So now the recommendation is to get your flu vaccine in October. That's the new language. That's new recommendation. Avoid getting in July, August. Aim for October for your dose of flu. Now, remember, children who are getting the flu vaccine for the first time under the age of nine years need two doses a month apart. So it's particularly important that clinicians who care for children organize their uh, flu vaccine practices so that they can get both doses in that child before the season of circulating flu starts in their community. That's hard work and American clinicians actually struggle with getting that second dose in, even though the evidence is very clear a single dose has no effect in that child if that's their first flu vaccine ever. Mm -hmm. And those over the age of 65 should get the higher dose. And would they be given that automatically or should they ask for it? No, and we got to be very careful about this. Mayo Clinic strongly recommends the high dose vaccine for people 65 years and older. It's a high dose inactivated influenza vaccine given by injection. It covers all four strains. Uh, there's another adjuvanted flu vaccine that may work just as well that's particularly designed for people 65 years and older, but they're in limited supply. 
So if you're 65 years and older and that vaccine is not available, the experts recommend, and Mayo holds this uh, to be true as well, if we don't have that vaccine today, you get the standard vaccine and, that, uh, and you don't need to come back later and get the high dose. But when it's available, we like to give the high dose. The ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that group of volunteer experts that the CDC and FDA organize to make recommendations on vaccine, actually doesn't have a preference. They just recognize there are vaccines available for people 65 years and older, but are, are perfectly happy with the standard vaccine. Okay. Are there any groups of patients who should not receive the influenza vaccine? Yes. Children under the age of six months don't respond to the flu vaccine. It's not that it's not safe for them. They just act like they were given a saltwater injection. It doesn't protect them and it'll confuse the parents if you give it to a child under six months and then only bring them back for that second dose. So they've actually only received one valid dose. So children under six months of age should wait till they're six months. Now, if I have a six month old in my practice and it's May and that's the first time I'm seeing in my practice, I will vaccinate them because our season is still continuing and I still have vaccine available. So you don't give up just because they hadn't turned six months by October. Uh, you use your entire season, you use every visit to vaccinate. Okay. Typically, what percent of the population don't get vaccines for uh, influenza? Among adults, it's about 55%. Wow, that high. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Um, and frankly, that's if you take all doses throughout the whole season. It's only 30% get vaccinated in a timely manner before it starts in their community. Now, it's still important to get the flu vaccine, even though it's late, but we could do a lot better as a country in getting our patients vaccinated. Now, we do a little better with children and adolescents, uh, more at the 60% range. But that's not the 100% we really need. And certainly with COVID-19, we should be as close to 100% as possible. Yeah. How about healthcare workers? Are we any better? We are. Actually, physicians as a group are 98% of us get the vaccine. And among healthcare workers, we are probably the leaders in terms of getting uh, the flu vaccine every year. Nurses, about 90%. Other healthcare workers are more in the 80, 85% range. We should do better. I'm proud of that physicians get the vaccine to protect themselves and their families. I wish that they could do a better job getting their patients vaccinated. There are some common reasons patients give us for not receiving the influenza vaccine, and let's talk a little bit about those. One that I hear commonly is, well, I got the immunization once and I immediately got influenza. You know, that's a very common concern and I really want to dispel it. I'm gonna tell you a story about a study that was run up in the VA up in Minneapolis, where they enrolled hundreds and hundreds of people 65 years and older for a volunteer study where half of them got the flu vaccine in September, half got a saltwater injection, a placebo of saline, and they kept a diary of all their symptoms for two weeks. Then the half that got the flu vaccine, not knowing whether they got the flu vaccine or placebo, came in and got the placebo, and the half that got the placebo, not knowing that they got the placebo or the flu vaccine, got the flu vaccine, and then they went another two weeks, 
and kept that diary. And then at the end of the study, they opened up the code, found out who got what, and looked at the diaries. And lo and behold, there was a small percent of people who got as sick as dogs, who said, I have never been as sick as this. This was the worst case of flu I've ever had, worst headache I had, and was equally distributed in both groups. About one to 5% would make claims like that, and there was no difference between salt water or flu vaccine. It just turns out that in the fall, some of us get sick and we tend to blame the last thing that happened to us. The reason we do randomized controlled trials is to tease it out. So do people get sick after getting the flu vaccine? Yes. Is it due to the flu vaccine? No, it's coincidence. It's a bad coincidence and people have to stop blaming the flu vaccine. We have science that shows it doesn't cause you to get that sick. Well, maybe we could start another rumor and say that uh, saline injections cause influenza. Who knows? <laughs> another one I get often is, I've never got the flu vaccine and I've never gotten influenza. This is very common. And this is part of the, the nature of medicine is that most of us, when we see cases of flu in the office, do not spend the patient's money or the insurance company's money on getting testing. Uh, of the flu. And in fact, when we see a sore throat in the wintertime uh, with a fever, we'll rule out strep, but we won't rule out flu. When many of the cases of sore throat with fever in the wintertime are actually due to the flu. Same thing with cough and fever. We'll rule out pneumonia, but we won't rule out the flu. Now, it's a little different in the ED. It's a little different in the hospital where we'll actually do the test. But we have a, lots of our patients come into our offices with the flu and we don't make the diagnosis. That patient goes away thinking they didn't get the flu and it fuels this belief that they are immune to the flu when in fact, five to 20% of us get the flu every year. And you can actually get the flu several times in a year. Now, half the time it causes symptoms so mild that you wouldn't even go to a doctor's office or consider talking to your doctor about it. But about half the time it causes you sick enough that your doctor may consider strep throat or a pneumonia. It might put you out of work. It might result in a doctor visit or ED visit. And now with COVID-19, it will also result in you needing testing for COVID-19 and possibly, well, definitely self-isolating until you have the test results. It could overwhelm the system and delay the results for patients who need to know they're positive with COVID-19. So we've got to prevent every case of the flu this year. Yeah. Well, what has been shown to be effective in increasing the uh, influenza vaccine compliance? I'm so glad you asked because so many nurses, so many public health officials, so many doctors think that we just need better education. We need community television and billboard spots. We need brochures that really nail it on the head and convince our patients to get vaccinated. And those have all been shown by randomized controlled trials not to work. In fact, sometimes they backfire. Studies have even shown it backfire with the flu. The most powerful thing that a clinician can do in the office to get their patient vaccinated is make a strong recommendation. And a strong recommendation goes something like this. All right, uh, your physical shows no concerns. I'll renew these prescriptions. The nurse will be in to vaccinate you. I want you to go to the, end of, uh, the hall then and schedule your next visit with me. That was a strong recommendation. You may use presumptive wording. The nurse will be in with the vaccine because you are using the wording you use throughout that entire physical exam. 
okay, take your shirt off so I can listen to your heart. You use the same language you would if you needed a chest X-ray. Now I need you to go downstairs, get that chest X-ray and come back up here. You use the same language, that presumptive language, and you said, I think we're gonna need to increase your dose of medicine. I'll write a new prescription for a higher dose. When you strongly feel something needs to be done, for your patient, you use presumptive language. When you use optional language, you're setting yourself up for failure. When you say, well, there's a, you could get the flu vaccine or what are your thoughts about getting the flu vaccine? You've actually made it sound like an option. It's unimportant to you, it's unimportant to the patient. And you don't do that. Throughout your entire visit, you don't use language like that. Do you want a physical exam today? Should I ask you a review of systems questions? Should we reconcile your medicines? You don't do that. Uh, you use presumptive language that the patient has come for the care you can provide for your advice. And when you feel strongly about that, you actually use language that assumes they're going to follow your recommendations. Now there's room in your clinic visit for shared decision-making. If you're at a crossroads where there are two good drugs to treat a condition and they both have benefits and disadvantages for which different patients might choose differently, that's a great case for shared decision-making. We don't have vaccines like that though. I don't have two vaccines other than the live influenza vaccine for flu mist and the injected form where I can use shared decision-making for the most part. We talk about shared decision-making with some of the vaccines, for example, older adults in terms of uh, the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, but most of the vaccines like the flu vaccine we should all get every year, there's not another reasonable option. All the other options are poor, so use presumptive language. Early in uh, my career, it was the physician's responsibility to uh, recommend to the patients they get the influenza vaccine during flu season, and our rates were notoriously low, like 15% were leaving our office uh, and had the vaccine, but 85% did not. So we discussed it, and we decided to turn the issue over to our nursing staff. As part of their intake process, they did exactly what you said, and our rates went up to about 98% by turning it over to the nurses. They did a much better job. You know, I, I want to bring that up because that's an important uh, practice that every practice should adopt across this country. Standing orders or nurse protocols that empower your nurses to get things done you need done routinely is a very good way to get that work done, done consistently and get it off your list of things you need to do. Combine that standing order with your office staff with uh, electronic prompts that review the patient's record and let you and your staff know the patient's due for a vaccine. And you've got two very powerful tools that in addition to your presumptive language will get your patients vaccinated. Well, what about predictions for the severity of this upcoming season? I would think we should have a lighter season just because of the mask wearing for COVID-19. It should also help prevent influenza. What do you think? It's hard to say. I've been in practice since 1987, and frankly, I see a different flu season every year, and I, they're hard to predict. I'll be in a better place six months to tell you how it went. But when we look at what's happened in the Southern Hemisphere, there's hope. In places that really were good about social distancing and masking, they did seem to dramatically reduce their flu disease outbreaks and the impact of the flu. In regions where they were overwhelmed by COVID-19, 
they weren't even focused on flu and couldn't separate out whether they were dealing with flu or not. In places that didn't practice social distancing and masking, they've had significant troubles with flu. I would say that the masks, the hand washing and social distancing will go a long way to control our flu outbreaks. But let's go the extra mile because we can't afford a single case of flu this year. Yeah. Well, Bob, let's conclude by asking you to summarize our discussion and maybe give a few key points about the importance of the influenza vaccine. Flu vaccine is important every year. Every one of us need to get the flu vaccine every year. But with COVID-19, we have got to prevent anything that will confuse and use up our resources in fighting the pandemic. And one of the tools we have is the flu vaccine. Get your patients vaccinated. Okay. We've been discussing the influenza vaccine with Dr. Robert Jacobson from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. Bob, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. You, you give a great interview. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking me to participate. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Bye.